Hi, once again, listeners. This is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here, we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. In these episodes, we talk with one of our consultants, exploring one of our different types of engagements, and we describe those issues those engagements were intended to address and how we solve them. Today, we're continuing our series of podcasts that delve into the world of agile scaling frameworks, a topic that's uh, apparently pretty popular according to the listener feedback we've received from you. We're joined in the studio uh, once again by Jenny Stewart. Uh, That's Constructs' VP of Consulting for those scoring at home. She's a frequent Kanban instructor, consultant, coach. I welcome you you back to the microphone, Jenny. Nice to be back, Mark. You've been out. Out roaming, apparently. You you took a little vacation down to southern Texas? Is that what yeah, I Yeah, a Big Bend National Park in Texas. It's actually oh, cool. beautiful, and you wouldn't necessarily even think you were in Texas. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I'm familiar with all the bigger parks. I'm not really familiar with that one, but um, sounds like that was a good time. Hiking, biking, a little Lots bit of both? Lots of hiking. Hiking nice. and a little nice. bit of canoeing through uh, a river canyon. Oh, nice. So a little upper body work, a little, little, little leg work. That's good. It's yep. good to run around. Excellent. Excellent. So today's episode, uh, I think we're going to focus on what we see as the most often used frameworks with our clients, uh, namely less Nexus, and of course, the 800-pound gorilla safe. Um, but before we dive into those in some detail, why don't we just frame this conversation a bit? What do you see as the challenges that organizations have when they move from team-level agile projects into these that maybe require more than a few teams? What happens when we scale? Everything just gets a little harder. And the bigger we scale, the more complicated it becomes, right? Managing the work of one or two teams, Scrum, one product owner across those one or two teams, happy march into the future. Easy peasy. But now imagine you've got 25 teams in five geographies around the world. Now we've got all of the product backlog items we need to feed into those Scrum or Kanban teams. Uh, You've got all those potential interdependencies between the teams. Some projects and products have more of those, some have less. But the more teams you have, the more likelihood of those interdependencies. Now, how do I understand the estimation practices across those teams so that I can make sure that I have enough consistency, that I can be looking for things like, how am I going to land this entire project or program across all of these teams? Everything just gets bigger, more complicated, and more challenging as you scale up. Okay. And it gets harder to understand where you are, too. Visibility, project visibility gets a little harder, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and things like, I mean, when you're, when you're smaller, I think you have, you have this set of stakeholders that, that, that uh, is directly involved in what you're doing. And I, I guess the involvement when you get to be bigger and complex uh, projects, that stakeholder involvement in terms of just keeping an eye on what's happening is also more, more important, right? It certainly can. You can certainly have a uh, larger plethora of potential stakeholders as you get larger and larger. And then aligning them, keeping them up to date, dealing with maybe competitive needs across a large set of stakeholder groups, that can all become very challenging for some of the projects that we see. 
Yeah, and I guess even even work activity mix can be different on larger projects, right? I mean, smaller projects tend to have, you know, construction as maybe a larger percentage of the overall time spent in the life cycle, but that shifts as the size of the project increases, right? I think this is a dynamic that a lot of people actually don't recognize. And one of the things that you'll sometimes see in organizations is, what works when you're really small starts to be challenging as you become a much larger organization, taking on these much larger project or program efforts with many, many teams. And certainly the shift of work activity that you're doing when you're looking at a, a really small project, the vast majority, say two thirds of the work of a, of a small project is construction. It's what people think about as the day to day in and in and out of actually writing code. Um, but as you get into these larger projects, the percentage of work activity spent on construction actually narrows. Uh, we need to start thinking more about how do I bring the work of all these teams together and test it? I need to start thinking about how do I build, say, as SAFE would call it, an architectural runway or enough architectural grounding or architectural consistency across all of my teams that my whole product is going to be a solution. Uh, I need to start thinking more about the requirements work and how do I maybe break down a large feature or capability and feed that to potentially multiple distributed teams and bring that back together. So there's just typically different, the, the kinds of work that we're doing on those larger projects. Yes, there's still construction, but there tends to be more work in other areas um, that we don't necessarily think about, especially if we make that shift from small to large projects. Sure, sure. I mean, software is not just about writing code. And it, Ain't that it, the truth? <laughs> that's what comes back, comes back in spades when you have much bigger teams like that. So let, let's if, talk about, um, yeah, go ahead. If some of these dynamics about project size sound kind of interesting to people and they want to dig in more, I'd really recommend Steve McConnell has a wonderful series called Understanding Software Projects. He talks about a number of different dynamics of software projects, size being one of them. And so that work activity mix we just talked about uh, is just one piece of a number of dynamics he talks about in that area. Great. Right. That's good. Well, I'm, Mr. Producer, Devin, uh, you're listening in the background. You can add that link to this podcast when it goes out so people can understand where to find that USP lecture series and, uh, and sample it. That would be great. So let's, um, let's talk about a foundational issue. And, and uh, I think this is something we find with Scaled Agile when we work with clients. And, and I've heard you mention this on, on a number of occasions. So anytime the size and the scope of a project increases – significantly, let's say, to the extent that there are multiple teams involved, the need for high fidelity agile practices is really important, right? I mean, I heard you mention it's like a house of cards. If the initial layer isn't really stable, then you start building on top of that. It's hard to imagine the higher levels of implementation to be able to support that if the practices below just aren't good, right? The basic blocking and tackling and things like that are, 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 are problematic, then you can't expect it to be solved by layering on it. Yep. I always tell people you can't build on a broken foundation. So if there are gaps in what the individual teams are doing, whether that's a scrum team or a Kanban team at that base level, 
if they're not producing things in a high quality, predictable manner, it becomes nigh on impossible to do high quality, predictable at that overall project level. Um, you know, one team, well, yeah, we need to fix that. But now if I have 30 teams with very shaky foundations, it just gets so complicated to try and manage things at that top level. I'm always recommending to people that we want to make sure that the team practices are in place. And then as we start to add pieces to support the multi-team or the scaled piece of all of this, we may start introducing a few simple things, but let's make sure the teams underneath the, the overall workflow are in good shape. And if they're not, that's one of the first things we're going to want to start working on. Right. I mean, that's, I think that's great guidance. And I think that, you know, there are some anecdotal evidence um, clients we have out there where they have fallen prey to that, where, where they have um, chased the shiny object of scaling and, and all of a sudden realized that some of the basic things that they used to do, they've fallen away from that. And that it really affects the performance when you scale, even to, you know, go ahead. Sure. Or uh, the joke I once heard from somebody is the organization that said, this scrum thing isn't working for us, so we're going to adopt SAFE. <laughs> but, but wait, yeah. SAFE is built on agile teams, so that's probably a bad direction to be heading. <laughs> really? So that's a good segue. Um, l- let's dig into these three frameworks that we're going to talk about today. Um, and and uh, let's start with some that are that are – I guess you would say more Scrum-like. And how about this thing called LESS, which is um, large-scale Scrum? What is it? Where did it originate? Um, give us some ideas about what it is. Sure. So LESS, uh, if you go back and start looking at some of the books written by Craig Larman and Bas Voda, you can really see where LESS itself started from. Um, Some of the books on scaling agile development really are the foundation for what less is today. And for folks who want to look at less, there's a wonderful website, less.works, that has all sorts of information about the framework, and you can dig into that in more detail. We see less a little bit more in Europe than I see it in the U.S. Um, That said there's no particular reason that uh, you wouldn't use it if you were in the U.S. Uh, world. You, you really can think of less as Scrum at the multi-team level. So we structure it with up to eight teams with a single product owner, uh, a single master product backlog, and a common definition of done across all of those teams. So all of those things, Mark, probably start sounding really scrummy to you. Scrummy. <laughs> That's, that didn't sound like a good word, does it? Scrummy. <laughs> um, Les also very strongly has a preference for feature teams, so teams that can deliver value versus a component team where you need two or three or four component teams bringing their work together to deliver value. So Les wants you to have a team that, say, has the user interface and the middle tier and the database all in it versus one team is doing the database, one team's doing the middle tier, and one team's doing the UI. So back to that idea of a scrum team delivers value, each team in Les should be able to deliver value. Gotcha. So, so taking that a little step further, you can do some more comparisons to single team. What are what are the kind of things that are you looking at when you're at scale that might be different than single team? 
Yeah, Les starts to feel really like Scrum with more than one team inside of the Scrum. So things like backlog refinement are going to be done by the whole less team, all of those up to eight teams working together. So here you're going to start seeing some maybe new patterns emerge. Uh, each team within that less grouping might do their own refinement, or they might do some joint refinement together. All eight teams get together and talk about what's going to be coming up in the backlog relatively soon. And then maybe they break into subgroups to do more detailed refinement coming back together. Or perhaps they take one particular large piece of work that many of the teams are going to contribute to, and they're all going to talk about it. Or representatives from five of the teams are going to get together and talk about it. So the refinement, I would say, is the pattern that the intent is it feels like Scrum and that we get team involvement in it. But the particular practices of is it everybody on all eight teams all together in a Zoom or Teams call, or is it more breakout session kinds of things? The implementation of that uh, varies quite a bit, and your needs as a product team should really guide how you decide to do backlog refinement. Uh, that said, you will want to do backlog refinement just like you want to do backlog refinement in Scrum. Okay. So other things like sprint reviews, they're still being done, retrospectives still being done as well? Yep. We are going to want to do sprint planning. The big difference in sprint planning is we're going to think about sprint planning in kind of two parts. We're going to do a, let's just say it's eight teams to keep it simple. We're going to do a part one. Everybody from all of those eight teams is going to participate in the conversation. What are we trying to get done this sprint? What are we going to be taking off the backlog as a whole collection of our teams together? And then we're going to, and, and that, that again can be done either with every single person of all of the eight teams or with just representatives from all of the eight teams coming together and saying, um, let's take these things. I'm going to take that back to my team. Um, and then in sprint planning part two, it's going to look like scrum sprint planning for each of those teams. So perhaps our representative went and said, here's the seven backlog items. Uh, for us to consider in our sprint planning, that team's now going to come together and do just regular scrum sprint planning to decide whether or not they can do all seven of those. Or perhaps they can do uh, all six and a little bit of part seven, and then that information is going to flow back to the product owner at the end of sprint planning. So sprint planning looks a little bit different, but should feel like scrum. Uh, the sprint review is going to be a little bit different in that each team won't do a sprint review. We're hmm. going to do okay. a combined sprint review because what we care about is the work done across all of these teams. So, so unified. Yeah, yeah unified. Okay. Uh, how we're, What we're basically doing is we're basically doing a product review or an increment review, if you want to use the Scrum term for it. What did all of our eight teams build together this sprint? And let's get feedback on that. Gotcha. So what happens if you have more than eight teams? Does this, does this system work? You're then going to have multiple lesses. You're going to be moving into what's called less huge. <laughs> wow, this is, I love these technical terms. 
<laughs> I know. Less, Less huge. huge. Oh, oh. Well, at this point, right, maybe you have, say, uh, 16 teams. You're going to have two of these instances of less. Each instance of less is going to have a single product owner. Uh, we're going to start to call that single product owner now an area product owner because they own a particular area of hmm. the product that okay. we're building. Uh, the only thing we're really going to add that feels different is we are going to now bring in a product owner. And that product owner is going to oversee the priorities of the area product owners. So you can imagine if you have five of these area product owners, you really want to have somebody steering the ship across all five of those area product owners. Are those areas all contributing the best value to the business? And that's really the role of the of the product owner is to look across all of the instances of less that are running. Perfect. So guidance on where does less fit best? Where does it struggle? How would you how would you characterize that? I would say less is a really good fit for organizations where Scrum just feels like it's a great fit for the organization and they want the simplest possible way to scale at a scale up a set of scrum teams. Right? Well, okay, this scrum thing is awesome, but we have seven teams and it's not going to work as is, but we really want to keep as close to scrum as possible. Less is the first place I would suggest that people look. Okay. That makes sense. How about the, the, the most problematic aspect of it for certain organizations? Where do they run into trouble? So the biggest criticism that I hear is the Scrum product owner takes on a pretty significant amount of work for Scrum teams. And some people will say that the guidance is that a single product owner can support uh, one scrum team and do other duties in the organization or two scrum teams. Well, now we're asking a product owner to support eight scrum teams. And Les is going to talk about the product owner really being a connector between the teams and the business. Um, but some people will say, well, that role of the product owner, once you spread them across three, four plus teams, it's really hard for them to be a scrum product owner as a lot of people talk about it. Gotcha. So I'd say that's the biggest criticism that I hear is that they're just spread so thin. And the idea of them being a connector works really well in some places where the teams really understand the business and they are very embedded, but doesn't work as well in other teams where maybe the teams aren't as deeply connected into the business and the product owners really being that proxy, uh, taking the business needs and building that product backlog. And now they're trying to do it for eight teams, not two teams. And, you know, they're just not getting the information of the teams in a timely enough fashion for things to work well. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. That's really good. That's very helpful, I think. So let's jump to the next one that we're going to talk about. And that is Nexus. Um, Give us some history, maybe an idea of its general tenets, what it, you know, how it, it performs, what things that it does well, how it's set up, et cetera. Yeah. You know, Nexus and Less remind me of each other quite a bit. They're both really built on the idea of I want to, I need to scale Scrum, but I want to stay as true to Scrum as possible. Uh, and Nexus comes from work that Ken Schwaber did. And Schwaber's obviously very deeply connected with Scrum. Absolutely. <laughs> 
So this is a guy who is not going to do something that feels like it's pulling the threads of Scrum apart at all. Uh, the Nexus Guide was first released in 2015, so it's a little younger, newer than less, um, but very much at its heart, I think, is doing very similar things. There's just a few nuanced differences between the two that I think are quite interesting. Okay. So how does it, I mean, how does it differ in terms of, of, of things if you compare to less, right? I mean, is it does it have the same number of teams? Does it have, uh, you know, single backlog that we talked about before? Is it, is it different than that? What's, give, me, give me some mechanics here. Sure. Um, so a couple of things. One, rather than saying something like up to eight teams, um, Nexus gives you a bit more of a range. So it says three to nine, uh, again, cross-functional teams. Uh, again, we'd want more feature-oriented teams. But the three to nine is quite a wide range. And what they're really saying there is there will reach a point in your organization where trying to put more teams inside of a nexus is going to be less productive. <laughs> mm, okay. And if you reach that at four teams, your nexus is full. And that would probably be a good indicator that maybe there are some integration practices or technical practices or other practices needed to help make sure that that nexus can be efficient at, say, six teams instead of four teams. Okay. So what – what, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say – I was gonna, just going to um, mention that – you know, you have this idea. I think you, I remember you hearing hearing you say something about that, that is that you have this um, the team level planning, kind of very similar to less, right? Not not a whole lot different than that. Um, but you have a the execution ends up with a slightly different end result, right? You ended up being being ready with a fully integrated product that's demoed to the stakeholders at the end. That's kind of different, isn't it? No, Les wants you to do that too, right? Does That's it? that okay. idea of a product review in Les. We're going to show the work across. The thing gotcha. That, okay. The thing that Nexus brings to the table is Nexus has a defined team called the Nexus Integration Team. And the, the net is a core part of Nexus. And what the Nexus Integration Team has is it has the product owner uh, it has a scrum master and it has team members, although those team members may be parts of other teams. The, the big thing that the Nexus integration team is looking to do is enable through tooling, through mentoring, um, through coaching people in how to do the work to make sure that the teams are integrating that work on a regular basis. So the goal between Less and Nexus, I think, is the same. Um, I think Nexus just said, gosh, a lot of people fall down here, right? You don't want six teams who are all integrating in the last day of the sprint because we're going to have lots of issues with timing and lots of potential, depending on our build situation, issues with actually getting things fully integrated. So they said, let's make sure we have a team here. We're not going to have that team do the work per mm -hmm. se, but we're going to have that team enable the work uh, to ensure that that value is fully integrated and ready for our demonstration at the end of the sprint. Okay. And so I you, think that's a great idea. Sure. Honestly. 
You mentioned this idea of standards. Like, I guess I think of things like COE type of stuff, right? Somebody's doing setting, like, we're all going to use this. We're all going to do this. This is, this is how we do it as an organization, you know, kind of thing. It's not really PMO, but it's, I guess it's more like a COE kind of stuff, I guess, right? Yeah, I'm center of excellence. Um, COEs I usually think of as being like organizational wide and one might have more than one nexus in its organization. Okay. So I think of this as a little – and I think of those groups as a little more strategic uh, here's kind of the next step across the organization that we're going to make. Uh, this, the COE might be the ones who are starting to help the organizational journey towards DevOps because we want to be able to get business value out faster. Whereas I think of the Nexus integration team as being a little bit more tactical in the here and now inside of the sprints that we're doing with grappling and tackling of uh, maybe helping the team implement the next piece of tooling or uh, helping the team set uh, standards, but within our nexus for how do we do integration so that it's most effective or how do we do um, how do we make that build process much, much faster so that we can be integrating every hour within the sprint versus maybe one we only had uh, a build that happened every four hours. And so there was delay and feedback when there was issues that needed to be fixed. Okay. Makes sense. So you, you do this project, you, you come up with a candidate that you demo to stakeholders and you do retrospectives just like you do in any other situation. Is this different in, in Nexus than, than it was the retrospective uh, behavior in less? There's a little nuance difference between the two frameworks. Both of the frameworks do retrospectives. Yay. Um, Yay. Both of the frame- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yay. Both of the frameworks include uh, each team holding its own retrospective to talk about what it as a team can do better, but also holding um, – maybe what you might call a a system level, uh, a retrospective across all of the teams, the timing of, uh, you know, do we do our team retros first versus do we send a representative from every team to talk about how the sprint went and then have the teams do the retro. The specific timing of those are a little different between the two frameworks, but honestly, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if somebody using less stole the pattern from Nexus and used it. Somebody using uh, Nexus stole the pattern from less because it was better because ultimately what you want to be doing is learning and adapting at the individual teams and at the Nexus or less level. And so both patterns I think are interesting. They're both viable. Uh, the patterns are a little bit tiny different between the frameworks, but ultimately, as long as you're doing those two things and actually making changes. <laughs> right. Not just going through the cargo cult activity, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we got to go to retrospective meeting. Yeah. And I would say the thing that I personally think is great is that once you do have five teams, six teams, eight teams, in general, yes, the teams need to make changes, but generally the power of changes that you can make is at that what is the product doing level. So the fact that both of these frameworks say, yes, teams individually you're going to meet, but now let's have representatives from all of the teams meet and talk about what's the challenge that's killing all of us as teams. Uh, that's, I think, the area that you get the most benefit from the conversation. That's the area where you can start identifying things like, 
I've been in organizations and the metrics that were being collected across a group of teams actually disincentivize the developers to give uh, code to other people early in the sprint. And no one team can change that, but boy, does that need to change, right? We want to make sure that uh, if there is a a test organization and they're going to be doing some testing as soon as possible, or if there's another developer, as soon as possible, we want that uh, feedback to happen. Right. That makes sense. You know, one of the things we talked about in the very beginning, uh, in terms of the challenge to 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 any kind of scaling environment, is is getting a feel for dependencies, right? And and you mentioned that in the beginning as 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 really a big deal, and I could completely understand that because you just uh, the engineer brain in me starts thinking about hierarchy and top level, and then working down through that and making assumptions and what's what does this team depend on where it, where it connects to other teams. So how does Nexus help with that? Is that is there something within that framework that actually um, really kind of helps to mitigate some of those issues or, or maybe illuminate them? Yeah, Nexus has this idea of the Nexus Sprint Backlog um, and that all of the dependencies between the teams should actually be visualized in this backlog. So that I can see, you know, team one, team two, team three, team six, and understand uh, what is the work that these teams need to be doing. Is something blocked? Is something uh, in team one ready for another team to pick up? So actually going through and uh, visualizing that and making sure that that's available to people so that they can see that. Uh, And so that in things like the daily um, you know, the, the net can be talking about what needs to happen and make sure that that coordination is, is occurring properly. So th- this is, this is more or less a Kanban portfolio view. I mean, it's kind of, it sounds like that, doesn't it? No, cause it's more focused on what's happening within the sprint. So when you and I have talked about Kanban portfolio, we're really talking about feeder activities that happen before things oh, even further upstream refinement. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So the, okay. the Kanban portfolio view wants to take, um, if you think about the concept of value stream, it wants to take it from ideation. Where do I have a beautiful idea? Um, through getting it fed into the Scrum process. And then after Scrum is done, what needs to happen for maybe validating that work, uh, maybe deploying it into our customers' hands and getting feedback on it. So that's really an end-to-end Kanban view. This is more grappling and tackling what's going to be happening inside the sprint. Um, through in, in sprint planning, we're going to create it and then we're going to keep it up up to date. And at the end of the sprint, just like any sprint backlog kind of item, it's kind of going to disappear into the ether, be recreated for the next sprint and sprint planning. Gotcha. So it's more, more just in time, right at the, t- at the point of teams actually doing work on it. Yeah. As, as yeah. opposed to upstream. Okay. Yep. That makes and, sense. Uh, and you know me, I'm going to say, regardless of whether you're using Nexus less uh, or built into SAFE is the idea of Kanban boards that model the workflow before and after Scrum teams do the work. And there's nothing stopping you uh, from using that, whether your framework is SAFE, LESS, or Nexus, or you've created your own from scratch. Sure. In the in the uh, in the interest of shameless self promotion, you can go back and listen to a couple of several of our Kanban series with Jenny. Um, it would be helpful to fill in the cracks if you don't have a context for that comment. But I think that's really good, really helpful. All right, so let's um, let's tackle the last of the frameworks that we want to talk about today, and that's Safe, the Scaled Agile framework. 
Um, so let's do kind of the same history and intro here and tell me about this 800-pound gorilla that everybody <laughs> – <laughs> all the C, all the CTOs read them on InFlight magazine. We're going safe. So, well, yeah. I will say safe is the most commonly used framework I encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the the there's there's a lot actually a lot to be said. There's a lot of teams that I work with where pieces, either core pieces of safe, are really helpful for where they are in their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, safe is uh, Dean Leffingwell. If you go look at some of his books like Agile Software Requirements and crack open the back of the book, you'll actually see something that looks kind of sort of like SAFE. SAFE's evolved a lot since then. So obviously those books are a little old. I wouldn't use them as your SAFE framework. Um, But it's been evolving for quite a long time. I remember Dean teaching Agile Requirements in Symbian years ago. Uh, when Earl Beattie and I were there and uh, kind of seeing that evolution of what he was doing there into some of the work he was doing in Nokia into what became version one of SAFE and has been ever evolving ever since uh, as part of his scaled agile framework and his scaled agile community. Gotcha. Interesting. So tell us a little bit about that what's the core of the uh, how does it work what are some of the mechanics of uh, of that because it's apparently a little different than the previous two that we talked about yeah you're going to see the core of safe being something called the agile release train and the agile release train is typically somewhere around 50 to 125 uh, cross functional staff that live on long lived agile teams and the train runs on a, on a fixed cadence. There's something in SAFE called a, a program increment or a PI. Uh, and a PI is usually either 8 to 12 weeks, somewhere in that range. The most common I typically see is about a 10-week cadence. And that's really a, a planning cadence. So the whole train is going to get together and they're going to take from a, a long master backlog, a program backlog, what the train's going to deliver in their next PI. Um, the actual deployment, um, depending on your situation, you might be doing continuous deployment of features as soon as they're ready inside of a PI. Um, or if you aren't in that kind of situation, you might run multiple PIs before you actually deploy. So don't think of uh, the deployment cadence when you think of the PI cadence. Just think of the team's planning is really the rhythm there. Gotcha. And, you know, if you don't have uh, an agile release train, I just don't think you're doing safe. You may have pulled elements of safe into your organization and used them and they're useful. But that's such a core part of the heartbeat and rhythm of safe that I really just think that needs to be in place in your organization for you to think you're doing safe. Okay. So so is there sort of this – I use the train analogy, you know – the conductor, <laughs> Mr. Conductor. Is there is a, a release train engineer. Is there a person that actually takes the takes the baton and and leads the the uh, agile release train? 
That's exactly right. You used the exact right term for it. It's the release train engineer. (laughs) Yep. You can think of it as like the Uber scrum master of the train um, or the agile coach of the train. Uh, They're really there to facilitate the events around planning and coordination and helping the team to deliver value. They do a lot of communication. Um, They're going to look at escalations of train level impediments. They're going to help manage train level risks. Uh, They're going to help do continuous improvement across the train. So kind of sort of sounds like a scrum master, just at a higher level. Bigger, bigger hat. Yep. Bigger hat. Absolutely. So, so what, how does it, how does safe deal with things like architecture? Cause you're dealing with, you know, when you're up at 125 cross-functional staff, you're at, you're at sort of almost a 20 team level at that point. Right. So that, so harmonizing the orchestra, so to speak. Yeah. And, and it matters, right? I mean, if you're one or two teams, you're a really small shop, you can probably get away with just coordination and communication between teams. You start looking at eight teams more, you, you need, you need a person who's going to be thinking about this Mm -hmm. and safe actually has a few key roles. We talked about the release train engineer. That's a key role. There's also a system architect or system engineer that is a key role on the train. And that's the person who's really responsible for defining and communicating that technical and architectural vision Uh, SAFE has something called the architectural runway. And so that uh, systems engineer, uh, systems architect is really going to help make sure we have enough. I think of it almost as architectural rails ahead of the train. (laughs) Well, you're mixing mixing metaphors here. We got trains and planes (laughs) with runways and I don't know. This is... Traveling. You have enough track ahead of you that you you're go. not going to be laying track in the current PI that, that you're trying to use, right? So they're right. looking at least a PI or so ahead of us to make sure that we're going to have all the right things in place that the teams need. And they're also leading that thinking and communication around architectural cohesion and consistency. Right. Right. I mean, it sounds like this program increment thing is the big is the big change, the big differentiator between this and other frame, frameworks. So, so let's go let's go into a little more detail on that because I think it's important here. What what really happens in that? Um, you start at that point in time in a PI thing with a program backlog. Is that correct? That's right, and that's kind of the final key role in Safe at that art level. Um, is that there is a product management seat at the table. And that product management seat at the table really oversees the program backlog. And the program is the the, the set of features um, and also the system architect. The system architect is going to give us enablers. Uh, so enablers will put in place support for, say, f- future features that we're going to do or will help us identify and uh, take care of maybe some critical technical debt that has really started to become problematic and we need to service some of that debt. So the program backlog has both of those people prioritizing the work uh, so that that's ready as the team kind of goes through that program increment boundary as it winds down one program increment and does its planning for the next program increment. Gotcha. So this this PI planning phase, that, how long is that? Is that are we talking about 
about an hour or a day or week long. I mean, it sounds like that could be agony if he's a week long. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a fair amount of preparation before you ever go into PI planning. So the release train engineer is going to be doing things like working with the system architect to make sure that they're ready to give an update to the team in PI planning, working with program management to make sure that that program backlog is really appropriately ordered and the features are appropriately prepared to go into PI planning. So all of that helps make sure that you don't end up with a week. <laughs> yes. And some of that work's even happening before you hit the PI boundary um, when you go through what's called the innovation and planning iteration and preparation for the closing one PI and entering the next. Mm -hmm. um, so what you're usually looking at is like a two to two and a half day kind of event um, it's a little more fluid now with the whole virtual. <laughs> yes, it used to yes. be kind of like a fairly strong in-person two-day event. But uh, as you and I know, uh, seven hours of Zoom or Teams is a lot of Zoom or Teams. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, COVID um, certainly has thrown a curveball to this notion of having that um, be an efficient meeting. So it's probably gotten... Uh, how do how do people cope with that in the in the COVID era? Are they, have they done things differently? Break it into pieces so it's not as as unpalatable as an eight hour session. Yeah, I've seen a lot of different patterns from organization to organization, and the scaled agile community has really recognized that things need to shift a little bit. So to find kind of up to date state of the art recommendations for today. I'd recommend that people look at that because you and I talking today and somebody consuming this in six months, uh, right. the patterns may have shifted as sure. we, sure. as we continue. I think we're going to see a lot of this hybrid working from home continue for quite a long time. So that would be the resource I would really point people at. But I would say what I've seen is a bit more flexibility in how people structure it mm -hmm. just to make sure that, that we can handle uh, both getting everything we need done, but also not just overwhelming people with the sheer amount of time we spend in a single day or a couple days on Teams or Zoom. Right, right. And I think that's just, uh, it gets back to this notion of leadership and how do you, you know, setting setting something that the organization feels is, is you know, sustainable in this situation. And again, that could change because, like I said, we... We are starting to see some indication of, of, of uh, organizations coming back into the office for small periods of time. Yep. Um, you know, you even were teaching. You actually I did was. it. You actually went on site somewhere, amazingly, wrapped in a bubble wrap and <laughs> whatever else. But no, but I, so I think it's, you know, we're starting to see that, that emerge. And then, so some of that's going to produce some changes. I think those are good comments to make just, just to kind of see where you are and Make sure that our comments about COVID right now are taken in context for present day whenever people are reading or listening to this thing. So, so you, you say that, um, agile release train stuff is that you refer to it as essential safe. And yeah. what about when you're even bigger? Can there be multiple release trains that feed into some bigger program? Yep, there can. Just like everything else, you can build on top of all of this. So the the, the terms change a little bit uh, as time goes by. Um, so always good to kind of look at, at what it's called today. But currently, we're looking at things like Essential Safe, mm -hmm. um, which really talks about everything we've been talking about here 
and also talks about things like, um, you know, the continuous delivery pipeline so that you can disconnect the idea of PI planning from that release cadence. So all <laughs> of those are covered in that essential safe. Um, but yeah, you can certainly have something like a large solution version with multiple trains uh, running underneath that large solution version. And now you're going to be adding kind of a bit more. You're going to have a few more roles. You're going to have the person who's thinking about uh, delivery at that larger solution level. You're going to have the, you know, kind of the RTE level who's going to be thinking about that solution delivery role. You're probably going to have pre and post planning meetings uh, assuming that the trains are interconnected, right? If the trains run separately, life is pretty easy. It's when the trains need to coordinate across each other that you're going to start to see another need for, okay, let's get together and talk about what all the trains are going to deliver. Then let's have the trains do their PI planning. Then let's get together and talk about the outcome of that PI planning and whether or not we need to adjust anything because the train's plan was maybe a little different than what we thought it might end up being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So more meetings. <laughs> yes. But, you know, at this point, so well, you've got, you know, three trains of uh, 50 to 125 people each. That's, you have that's, to. Yeah. I mean, the the other thing I always talk about when we're talking about scaling is the more we can do to kind of descale, the better, right? All of these assume there's some amount of coordination and dependencies between these. And the more we can start kind of breaking that down, okay, instead of having the trains really being in dependent on each other, I'm in a place in an organization where the train runs on its own. I don't have to coordinate. Well, I no longer need these pre and post meetings because the trains are completely independent, delivering in their own fashion, maybe fed from a portfolio backlog that makes sure that the work they're doing is the right work mm -hmm. across the organization, but there isn't interdependencies between them. Um, can I make things simpler by doing things like uh, getting us continuous deployment so that I have all of those integration processes of checking code in that just make my life simpler? So we haven't talked about that yet, but sometimes I think the answer to scaling is to try and descale. <laughs> We're that, that so. That train is coming. We'll put that on the shelf. We'll come back to this in a couple of minutes, but I think that makes sense. So let's talk about, like, as we did on the other two, um, um, where does safe fit and where might it not be a good thing to think about? I think safe really sings when you've got a large product or system in a complicated ecosystem with a lot of interdependencies, I need to get all of my teams on the train together to plan because there is a lot of coordination and dependencies between those teams. So when I'm in a situation like that, I think that SAFE really sings because its intent is, I almost think of a PI as an Uber sprint, right? Mm -hmm. It's a sprint composed of maybe five sprints underneath it. And I need to get everybody together to talk about all of those because there is so much alignment, coordination, and communication that we need to do together. Gotcha. So when you say large, are you, I mean, would you say something like 10 teams or more or something like that? I mean, is there, is there some range in your head that you think about, uh, you know, as, as like, you know, you wouldn't do it with three teams, for example, right? No. Too, much too much overhead, too much. Yeah. 
I don't think I'd even do it with five teams. I think at 10 teams, I'm starting to kind of look at some things from safe. Um, When I look at a product organization that has about 500 people in it, I'm definitely going to start tilting. And especially one that, say, has a lot of those interdependencies and maybe has some issues really getting the, the work aligned together. Uh, and integrated together across all of those teams. And so I need these forcing functions to make that happen. I'm going to be starting to look at a lot of the things inside a safe. Okay. Well, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, I've heard, I've heard in with some of our clients where they, they, uh, you know, I use this analogy over and over again, the chase the shiny object kind of thing. Right. And, mm-hmm. and safe in, in some respects to some people thinks like it's a solution, you know, it's a perfect silver bullet. And yet, in many organizations, it's way too heavyweight and way too prescriptive for the kind of things they're trying to do. So, and, and you know, it it almost seems like it, it it nudges people away from from agile basics a bit, right? So done done poorly, I think it can be right. And you'll and that joke about well, Scrum hasn't worked for us, so let's do safe is a right. perfect example of the yeah, wrong absolutely. way to be thinking about it. Absolutely. Um, but you know, I have a lot of organizations where we've maybe not adopted all of safe, but we've taken some concepts like the program increment and brought that in because they needed that forcing function of you can't go more than five sprints before you really have an integrated product demonstrating value. And that, you know, within the PI uh, in sprint two, you're going to make sure that the work across all of your teams in sprint one was fully integrated so that we could demo it and kind of corralling some of the bits and pieces. Um, there have been times where safe is just my go-to for at least bits of safe because the organization really needed it. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's great guidance. So as we often do in our in, in our webinars or in our podcasts, we, we, we we're list makers, right? We do this list thing, right? So one of the things you and I talked about was, you know, as a final thing to talk about today, let's, let's talk about some recommendations for an organization that might be on the cusp of considering, um, you know, how they're looking at their challenges. Maybe they need to go to a scaling framework. So you gave me six recommendations to offer. And I think we should walk through those just to kind of, kind of, um, you know, illuminate some of the things that people might think about as they're, as, as they're staring down the abyss of going to a, <laughs> to a scaling framework. So the first one is, is like, it's like completely counterintuitive to this whole discussion. Right. And, it, and the first one was don't, it's like, it's like totally snarky, right? Like it's like people hear that and go, cool. Okay. I'm skipping to the end. We're done. So, but, but what do you really talk about when you say, you know, you're really saying simplify what you're looking at, right? Start, start there. Yeah. I mean, if I can start to dissolve my dependencies rather than manage my dependencies, I want to do that. So mm-hmm. if I can find ways to make teams more independent, um, can I have them doing things like CI pipelines rather than a build process where I need a forcing function to make sure that in Sprint 2, the work of Sprint 1's work is fully integrated? Hmm. If instead okay. it's fully integrated every single day, my life is in a really different place, right? Do a, you know, my, my NIT probably isn't doing a whole ton of work in the Nexus integration team uh, compared to if my build process needs a lot of care and feeding. 
Um, can I do microservices? So the deployments can be independent and I need less dependency management between these teams. Um, am I organized in a way that makes my life harder, like component teams versus feature teams? And can I, maybe I can't make a shift a hundred percent to feature teams, but where can I make a shift to more use of feature teams rather than all use of component teams? So Try and simplify the problem, right? Don't accept that the current state is the best state for you to be in. Start to look for ways that you can make your... Earl, I think Earl likes to say things like, you've been scaled. <laughs> you've been scaled. <laughs> <Ding -ling. laughs> I mean, sometimes it's just, okay, I have a big problem. How do I handle it? And if I can find ways to make that big problem less thorny and less painful fewer dependencies to deal with. Uh, maybe sure. I put a program Kanban board in place so that I'm not uh, talking about priorities inside of prepping for the PI, but I'm talking about priorities at a different place with different people. Can I make the world these teams live in simpler over time? And this mm -hmm. is not, you're not going to, this is not tomorrow. It's not magic, but this is the journey. A lot of the clients I've worked with have gone on is how do I make this world simpler so that each team or each train can be more independent? And so I need less work for meetings and roles and things in the scaling frameworks. And people can just be more, here's your piece of what you're doing. You can run with that. Right. It's just coupling, right? You're trying to yeah. find a way to decouple these things so people can act more autonomously, which which is I think is a good thing overall. So the second recommendation, I think, and we've we've hammered this one a bit, um, but I'll, I'll bring it up again, is that is that is, that's building on the solid foundation, right? We make sure that teams are using high fidelity practices at 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 the very very bare bones level in your organization, right? Yep. If you're not delivering quality at the team level, you certainly can't be delivering at the product level. Yeah, it's 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 really bad. So um, how about a holistic recommendation for the third thing. Hit me with this idea of using best technical practices, right? I mean, that's what Constructs was invented on 25 years ago. And we're talking about outside basic Scrum Kanban elements here, right? Outside that stuff, different things that you use as best practices. That becomes more important at a holistic level. Yeah, and it goes to that idea of quality at the team levels. Um, you really want to make sure that you're thinking about things like, what are my integration practices like? You know, at least moving from regular builds to continuous integration, looking to move beyond continuous integration into continuous deployment. And that brings, this is one of, I think, the wonderful endeavors happening in our industry, because as you try and move into uh, beyond CI into CD, you will start to need to do a lot of things to make the technical underpinnings better, right? You're right. going to need good automated testing. You just can't get away from that. Um, you might be thinking about things like maybe test-driven development is going to be the thing that's really going to lead our way into this continuous deployment world. Um, I'm going to make sure that I probably have things like coverage metrics so that I understand where my code has issues. I may even be doing things like coverage metrics compared to code change metrics. So I know mm -hmm. that I don't need to invest a lot in more coverage in areas that don't change and uh, instead be shooting at these areas that maybe change a lot or areas that we get a lot of 
uh, defects in, right? Defects, I joke, defects travel in packs. Where there's one, there's probably more. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they love, e- they love each other. They do love each other. And if you can find a cluster, <laughs> that's a cluster that probably, well, maybe you want to go beyond even automated testing. And that's an area that becomes technical debt and you want to refactor it and make sure that in refactoring it, you build in really good unit testing and coverage in that particular area so that we can just dissolve that pack of defects. Right. I mean, I think the, I think the takeaway from that is that you're talking about building working software frequently. And in order to do that, you have to be driving a quality metric all through your organization. Everybody that touches that code needs to be thinking of the fact that downstream, someone's this every single day, every single hour, every single five minutes, whatever, someone's going to be building this thing. Do I know what I'm doing in yep. terms of what it, how am I touching this stuff? So that's good. So let's try number four, and that's about alignment of work. What's, what's that all about? Yeah, we want to make sure that the teams get work that adds value from an organizational perspective. So these are where we have things like the product management group in the scaled agile framework or that uh, area product owner who has a, a product owner um, overseeing their priorities. Or often when I'm not bringing in a particular scaling framework, we'll talk about the idea of a chief product owner, somebody who's making the ultimate decisions across all of my teams to make sure that we're building the best value across all of the teams. I think about a group I was with once and they ended up having product owners. And then I think they called them feature owners. They were people who were trying to get functionality delivered, but they weren't a product owner as a team. And when I talked to them about what was the most important work, uh, it was actually the work a feature owner had, but that Mm. work wasn't being done by any team because they weren't a product owner. And they didn't have a chief product owner saying, hey, look, this is this feature is really important. I want as many teams as possible delivering that value into the marketplace as soon as possible. So they didn't Mm -hmm. have an ultimate arbitrator, which meant product owners just did what they thought was most important to them. Ouch. So, you know, again, you're all, when you talk about alignment, you're talking about getting, um, use the, use the train analogy, you get the rails lined up. People are doing this things that you expect them to do. Um, You have somebody coordinating. um, You have a shared cadence that people are using. Um, Any way you can think about, trying to align things like sprints and things like that. So everything is harmonized. You have sort of alignment across that board from top bottom to top. And it makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I am also always looking for across a product. Do they have one backlog, right? If I've got a product and every team has individual backlogs, but I can't backfill that to what is the product doing. Right. I know I have a problem, right? Right. Right. Because the team contribution should be for the vision and the objectives of the larger effort that we're part of. Okay. So that's big picture. The number five that you gave me is also a big picture thing. And that, and that is the idea of using system level events. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. It sounds great. <laughs> well, remember when we were talking about less and Nexus and we were talking about that retrospective and how the power is, uh, there can often be more power in the retrospective across all of the teams than in the retro of each team. Sure. 
it's exactly that, right? And and SAFE has a very similar inspect and adapt loop at the PI level. So I always tell people, you know, if you're doing one of the frameworks, you're getting this for free or you should be, right? If you're mm-hmm. not, you should go look at the framework again and figure out where your gap is in your adoption. But you want to make sure that you're doing the inspect and adapt, right? That that one of the reasons Scrum is so powerful is those built-in inspect and adapt loops. Well, now I have Scrum and say Kanban teams and I have 15 of them. I'd better have inspect and adapt loops across all of those teams. I need the product level one. So some form of product retrospective, uh, preferably happening as often as possible, right? So I love the idea in Lesson Nexus that it happens at the end of each sprint. Um, you know, in SAFE, it's going to happen in sprint at the end of the sprint or sometime in sprint N plus one. So make sure you're doing it on a frequent basis. Um, some form of uh, process inspect and adapt loop. So, you know, making sure that, and I do that not just at the team level, but at the multi-team level so that I can talk about the challenges that impact all of my teams. Um, gotcha. I was in an organization once and the build process was just killing them. But none of the teams could fix it, right? We needed that system level inspect and adapt to identify that that was a huge issue and then get the organizational buy-in to invest in actually fixing that. Right. So the system demos are key. I mean, I think the key thing in this one is this regular, the notion of regular meetings. Don't just do it when when, when you feel like, you know, the house is burning down. Do it on a regular basis so that it's predictable, you know? I mean, it's... Yeah, and, and it's that forcing function. All right, every two weeks on Thursday, we're going to do a demo of our entire product, and we're going to ask our, you know, senior executives, our product management organization, or our business partners to give us feedback on what we're doing. Right. right? We don't want to run open loop for three months only to figure out we are going in the wrong direction. So for for really big organizations, you're you're an advocate for things like knowledge sharing, like the idea of community practice, uh, those kind of things make sense, right? Yeah, or if you want to be a little hipper, call it a guild. <laughs> Ooh, I'm in the guild. That sounds like I would give me some costume play going on there or something. I don't know. Oh, I was going to say, sounds like I might be learning a trade for future use. But <laughs> That's right. Yeah, establishing yeah, that, things like a, a scrum master community of practice where the scrum masters can learn and share what's working for them or share some of their challenges or do brown bags on new things that they might be able to bring to the table uh, and doing that on a regular basis. Or a product owner community of practice. Or I've had organizations who really want to take the next step in an area, mm-hmm. like they might really want to be doing more to up-level their unit testing. And so there's a community of practice around unit testing to help and support that journey as the teams get better. Gotcha. So so the last recommendation, and I think we kind of already touched on this, and, and you say this phrase when you're talking about inspect and adapt meetings and sort of this notion of continuous improvement Seek excellence. You yep. know, it's either like Yoda, seek excellence, you say, or or maybe like Bill and Ted, right? Seek excellence, dude. Um, so what do you mean there? I mean, it's just you're, you are really kind of hammering this thing, right? Saying continuously looking at what, you know, it's hard to like the old adage about, you know, when you're, when you're in the swamp, right? And you, you can't, you, it's fighting alligators. You, you can't remember the idea was to drain the swamp. So stand back, take a look, inspect what you're doing. 
you know, continuously looking at what you're doing, making sure that everybody's on on the same page, right? Yeah, I don't know how many organizations I work with that you get so busy doing the work that you forget to think about how to do the work. And maybe your Kanban teams are doing it at the team level and your scrum teams are doing it at the team level, but you're not doing it at the organizational level. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many times I've been in organizations and I get brought in to look at what the teams are doing. So I come in and I do scrum training or Kanban training and I work with five teams or eight teams or 10 teams. And then I end up with my list for the organization of the things they need to do to enable all the teams to be better. And it's almost always at least 50% longer than the list that the teams need to be doing to make the teams better. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so you can't just say, I want my agile teams to be better and think that magically overnight your organization is going to get better. You want to be in embracing things like communities of practice and product level retrospectives or system level retrospectives, uh, or just reflecting on where are our biggest challenges and what techniques and practices are available for us to put in place uh, to to manage those and to make those better. Uh, You and I have talked a ton about um, value flow and user value flow and program level or portfolio level Kanban to help us get out of the weeds of the day-to-day and into the big picture of who are we really trying to make happy? What does happy mean? And how do I order that backlog to feed all of the teams? And, you know, I can make the teams faster, right? I can tune the engine to have you go on 70 instead of 60. But what if we're going in the wrong direction? Faster ain't better. Right, right. I think we, we, we get back to some of the management discussions I had with Steve McConnell uh, uh, when, when we talked about his book series here. And, and, you know, predictability for management, really throughout the hierarchy of management, right? Predictability. Nobody wants to be surprised. Yeah. So this notion of, of having things flow, the value of, of, of the delivery to the end user is clear. It's um, fast, it's smooth. It's not chunky. You're getting things done in a, in a way that feels like the shareholders are being served properly by the organization and what they're delivering. And that just that process of being really smooth, I think, is important. Just getting getting people to understand that as we continue to look at our practices and processes, there's always room to do something different. Right. It's yep. never going to be perfect because things change over time. Right. And even if we reach a state of perfection the world and ecosystem or our business would start to change. And what was perfect a year ago might not be perfect anymore. Perfect. And that, that, and I think that's a great way to kind of summarize that. So we've hit a lot of things over here. Let's, you know, we're, we're about an hour through this right now. People are still hanging in there. Why don't, why don't we do let the quick cliff notes thing, like a quick summary of the frameworks that we hit. So people can pocket that as a little pocket reference and take that, take that away. Sure. So I would say that SAFE provides the best support for kind of enterprise considerations. It's the only framework that really has a seat at the table for works like product management. It's Mm -hmm. the framework that thinks about the portfolio, that thinks about the large product solution. So if you're big and it's complicated, your SAFE's going to have a lot of things that are helpful to you. 
Uh, Less and Nexus are my go-to if you just, you're a scrum organization and you just want the simplest possible way to scale up. I want it to feel and look like scrum, just bigger scrum. Okay. And I would be, because SAFE does such a good job of providing support for very large, complicated things, I am a little leery about using it for small teams and small organizations. Five teams, six teams, I might pull a piece or two out of it, but I'm probably going to be looking at either uh, one of the smaller frameworks or just a homegrown set of common practices, things like the retros and the product level demo. Some of the things we've talked about that are core to all of the frameworks and just implement those instead. Okay. Super, super helpful. I think that takes us to the end of our time on this episode. I think we really hit it pretty good. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for talking to us through this uh, bigger pictures here. I think your listeners now should have a good understanding of where these frameworks apply where the value is in each and, and maybe some great thoughts about what to do whenever that approach, whatever approach they choose, they can actually um, use some of this information. So thank you so much. All right. That's a wrap. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of inspect and adapt the constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host, Liz Ostachewski has been our audio engineer and Devin Musgrave is our fearless producer. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you normally find us. As I mentioned earlier, it's safe to say that the nexus of this discussion was less about our interest and more about yours, our listeners. See what I did there? Eh, Don't lose my day job, right? I could say that's a dad joke, but then we'd have to talk about yet another scaling framework and we're really out of time. Anyway, the bottom line is that sending us your ideas indeed works. We do listen to you. So if you have ideas for a future podcast or comments on this one, or would like to talk to one of our practitioners about this or something other than what we talked about today, don't wait. Reach out to us via comments at constructs.com. Once again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Home stretch, people. Keep staying safe out there. And everybody, have a great next sprint. Thank you.